What is worship? That's the question we are asking this evening. And why should we or must human beings worship God? I suspect we'll focus more on the why as opposed to the nature of worship itself. Uh, but together, this is an important question, isn't it, which all of us must clearly answer. I think it's a poet, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who said, a person who worships something, I have no doubt about that, we may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will come out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore, it behoves us, he says, to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What we are worshiping, we are becoming. Now, Emerson was not a Christian, but he was right that we are worshipers. All human beings are worshipers. All that we think, desire, do, say, is shaped by what or who we worship. Now, God has created us to worship him, right? So there's no greater issue than understanding what worship is and why we should worship God. Now, one reason we should worship God is that the Bible commands us to worship him. But if that is our only reason for worshiping God, then we are relating to God because we must. If we're only here because God commands us to worship him, then it's really out of a sense of duty. Uh, the Bible, that's good to worship, to obey God, but the Bible gives us more reasons for worshiping than simply that God commands it. Now, another reason we worship God is that it benefits us. Uh, A.W. Tozer says, without worship, we go miserable, right? But if that is our only reason, right, for worshiping God because we don't want to go miserable, then really worshiping God has become really to be about us, right? So where do we go to understand why we should worship God? Well, the Bible is the only authority, and I think Psalm 29 is very helpful in this question of worship. This psalm was written, like the psalm we looked at this morning was written by King David for worship. It's an appropriate psalm. And it gives us three reasons on why we should worship God. I just want to talk you through three reasons it gives on why we should worship God and what that implies about our, what true worship is. Right? Now, the first reason we must worship God is that God is gloriously beautiful. That's the first reason. Why should God be worshipped? Well, because God is gloriously beautiful. Look at Psalm 29 there. David begins by calling on the heavenly beings or the angels to ascribe glory to God. Look at this one. Ascribe to the Lord, Yahweh, all heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. To ascribe means to give or to attribute to God all the glory. You know, when the Bible here speaks of the glory of God, what is it talking about? What is the glory of God? Well, the glory of God is not a thing. 
like a chair or a car or a book or a piece of cloth. It's not a physical thing. It's those things that we can accurately describe with words and picture in our minds. The glory of God is not like that. The glory of God is beyond description. Because this glory is not a part of God. God has no parts. That's a doctrine of divine simplicity. The glory of God is essentially who God is. The glory of God, if you like, is a sum of all his divine attributes, which together make him the God of glory. It is his beauty, which he alone is worthy of worship, worthy of honor. As Thomas Watson reminds us, the glory of God is the sparkling of the deity. God's very life lies in his glory, and he cannot increase or decrease. The glory of God is infinite, unchanging, and eternal. And this glory and majesty of God belongs to the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, the glory of God is not just a, a description, of, not, not just who God is. The glory of God also includes his actions in history as our Redeemer, as our King, as our Lord, our Savior. All that God does is glorious because it displays his glorious nature. The actions of God reveal his glorious character, his nature. And because God is glorious in every possible way, he alone stands in the universe as the only one who's worthy of worship, as the only one who's worthy of the surrender human beings should surrender to as the only one who is worthy of the love of every human heart. And this is why David here is declaring to the angels and everyone in creation to bow down in worship before God. Why? Because God deserves worship. Look at verse 2 again. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. What is the name of God? Well, the name of God is fundamentally an expression of God himself. It is who God is. And that is why the name of God in the Bible, have you noticed, the name of God in the Bible has divine attributes. So, for example, in Leviticus 20, verse 1 to 3, the name of God is holy. Interesting. Psalm 8, which we looked at um, was that last week? Maybe last week. I can't remember when we looked at Psalm 8. <laughs> Sometime back, two weeks ago. The, the, the name of God is described as majestic. Right? The, the name of God has divine attribute because God's name is who he is. We even worship and praise his name. So when David says here, give God the glory due his name, he is saying, reflect to God what he is already is. Ascribe to God. Rightly treat God as he is. Recognize God for who he is. He is the God of glory. Verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. We'll come to that. The God of glory thunders. That's God, isn't it? He's the God of glory. And so we are to worship him because he's the God of glory. We are to ascribe glory to him. How do we give God glory who already has glory? Right? Well, the answer is in verse 2, isn't it? In the splendor of holiness. 
Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. This literally means worship God for his holy array or attire. In other words, God is so gloriously beautiful, he's covered in amazing splendor of holiness. As Psalm 27 verse 4 tells us, he says, It's one thing I have asked of the Lord, David says, that I will seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. What David is reminding us there is that God, God's glory, his, the splendor of holiness is really his beauty, as it were. And so when we come back to Psalm 29, David here is not just saying we are to worship God in accordance with his holy requirements, but we are to revel and enjoy his glorious beauty. God is gloriously great, gloriously beautiful, gloriously perfect. There is no one like him. There is no one that rivals our triune God. There is no valid comparison to God. God is the great other. All things come from him, all things exist through him, and all things are for him. God is the bright and burning, if you like, the bright and standing star in the center of eternity, the center of history. What is physical? What is spiritual? What is now? What is to come? All things exist for him. All life is found in him. To revel, enjoy, and worship God for his glory, beloved, is not just about being spiritual. You get that? It's not just about you being spiritual. It is you living out your true humanity as a creature. You were created to worship. And you are not being truly human unless you're truly worshiping the God who made you as a human creature for worship. God created us to worship his beauty. Now, the beauty of God is what should be at the center of our thoughts every day. It should be what at the center of our imaginations every day. We should be people who are worshiping God 24 hours a day and focusing on his beauty. Sadly, for many of us, the truth of the glorious beauty of God is not really, if we are honest, what occupies our minds often. When was the last time you sat down and you thought, God is beautiful? Let me just ponder on that. We do not think much of God's beauty. We are busy people. We are occupied with many things. That's one reason. The other reason, of course, is just fundamental, which is this. We struggle with meditating on the beauty of God because we cannot see God. So our minds are taken up with created things that we often find more attractive than God himself. We allow the temporal beauty of this world to obscure God. The temporal beauty of the present world is meant to point us to the glorious beauty of God, isn't it? But we allow the temporal beauty to obscure that. And I've said, as I said, when we're looking at a similar passage in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 4, I said, you know, borrowing from Paul David Tripp's uh, encouragement of us is that we must allow all of creation to point us to God. The rising of the sun each morning is meant to remind us of the beautiful faithfulness of God. 
When we're on holiday or we decide to put on Netflix and watch one of those propaganda documentaries of Lord Attenborough. Is he a lord now? Anyway, David Attenborough writes, when we put it on, they're good though. Propaganda, but they're good. So you start watching them. When we see the stunning beauty of wildlife, we're not supposed to stop there. We are meant to ponder just how eternally beautiful the creator must be. But how many of us, in, when, we, when, we, when we watch those things, are actually allowing those things to escort us into the presence of God? You know, when we experience human love from our spouse, we are, we are not meant to worship them. That human love is meant to be a human billboard that points us to the eternal beautiful love of God that exists between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The love he shares with us through the Lord Jesus Christ. You see... As the Puritans used to remind us, and they did part of a trip in, in his books, makes it point clear, all creation is a finger pointing to our beautiful God. It is not meant to hide his beauty, it's meant to point us to God. We, creation is meant to help us magnify the glory, the beauty of God. And I wonder maybe next time you just think of an issue going on in your life, you think about something, some blessing you've enjoyed. If only you pause to ponder and give God thanks and allow that experience to remind you of the beauty of God where your life will be transformed. Your life will become a life of worshipping God. Now, the sum total of God's glory is too sparkling for any of us to look upon it. We cannot see the full measure and wonder of the glory of God. No man has seen God and lived. The Bible reminds us. Moses in the Old Testament wanted to see the glory of God. Show me your glory, Moses said. But, Moses, but God made it clear to Moses that he would have to die if he wanted to see the glory of God. Exodus 33, verse 17 to 20 uh, makes that point. In fact, even if you had no sin, you cannot withstand the naked revealed glory of God. The fact that we are sinners simply intensifies our problems. And yet God, by his grace has condescended to make his glory visible to us through the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says this, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Jesus Christ. The face of Jesus is the very face of God. This is why Revelation 22 makes clear that one day all followers of Jesus shall see God face to face. Which God? The Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot, as human beings, look directly into the very essence of the triune God, but we can see as much of God's glory as humanly possible through the face of Jesus Christ. Just as we cannot look directly upon the Son we cannot directly look upon God. But we can look at the reflection of the sun in the water, can't we? And that way we get, we get some understanding of the sun. In the same way, beloved, Jesus is that lake. Jesus is that water that enables us to look upon the glory of God. Jesus is able to do that because Jesus is 100% God and 100% man. Jesus is the very beauty of God dressed in the rags, the ugly rags of human flesh. The wonderful news of the gospel is that 
In Jesus, the feet of eternal beauty have walked through the ugly pages of human history. That's the wonder of the gospel. And because Jesus is the glory of God made visible, well, this sets Jesus apart, doesn't it? From all things in creation. If we want to worship God, we must go through Jesus. Because Jesus is the beauty of God dressed in our flesh. And this changes the question of God's glorious beauty, doesn't it? Because it isn't simply that we should worship God because God is gloriously beautiful. We, as believers, we should worship God because this gloriously beautiful God has given us the privilege now to worship him. There's a sense in which the, the, the depraved world cannot really worship God. Because to worship God, you must come through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so if you're a follower of Jesus today, you have the privilege of worshiping the glorious God. You can worship him. That's the point. And thank Jesus for that privilege. Thank his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for revealing the glory of the triune God to you. And ask God to help you not lose sight of this wonderful truth. You know, sometimes we forget. We forget just how great it is to be a Christian. We forget that. It's sad, it's sad but we do. We take our life with God for granted. If you are in Christ, Remind yourself of this wonderful privilege. Worship is a privilege. A privilege that's there only for true believers to enjoy. The non-believers can call out to God, but God won't hear. God won't recognize their worship of him. And because for worship to happen, God must give us a new heart. He must work through the Spirit. And God has done that through Jesus. And through Jesus, we, we, we are able to approach this, this God, this glorious God. And we're able to bask in his glory. The glory of God revealed in Jesus motivates our worship. And how do we worship? Well, we worship through Jesus. God is gloriously beautiful, and we know him in Christ. That's the first reason why we must worship God. The second reason we must worship God is that God is gloriously powerful. So first reason is that God is gloriously beautiful. The second reason is that God is gloriously powerful. The God of the Bible is not a sleeping beauty. He is gloriously powerful. He is a gloriously powerful God who dominates and projects his glorious power over all things. Look at verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful, we are told that. Now, if we step back, we look at verse 3 to verse 9. What's going on here? Well, verse 3 to verse 9, really, David here is writing like a um, meteorologist. Is that the word? He's tracking a hurricane, a divine hurricane. He pictures the storm of God sweeping in from the sea. That's what's going on in verse 3. With devastating power, the storm gathers over the Mediterranean and then invades the land. And then the divine presence is felt in the south, downwards. That's what's going on in this verse. When God speaks first, he thunders the water. Look at verse 3. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The glory of God thunders, David says. The Lord over many waters. You know, the waters at this time were considered by the Canaanites as the battlegrounds of the gods Yam and Baal. That's the context here. 
Uh, they were, it was a place of conflict at which these false gods battled uh, by, with one another. But David here, therefore, as he writes this psalm, he's saying to them, it is not these false gods who are powerful, it is the Lord, the God of Israel. His voice thunders over many waters. When God speaks, mountains shake and run around like animals. Look at verse 6. He makes Lebanon to skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. You know, Lebanon here refers to Mount Lebanon. That's the point. And Syrian is really Mount Hermon. These are mighty mountains to the north of Canaan. And this is the geography, you see, the storm is sweeping in from the north, right? These are mighty mountains in the north of Canaan, right, rising 10,000 feet above sea level. But before God, they are nothing, they are just like a skipping calf. When God speaks, the wilderness now and the forest are shaken and laid bare in verse 7. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire, verse 7. Verse 8, the voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. Verse 9. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth. And we pause there just to note the footnote there. It's important in your Bibles, isn't it? I hope you got one there in your Bible, the footnote. Because the, the vocalization of that literal translation is that the ox, the voice of the Lord makes the ox to shake. Verse 4 and 9 are wonderfully summarizing God's attributes. You see that he's full of power. Look at verse 4. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. That's also there in verse 4. And then verse 9 is full of glory there. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, and I think we should understand that, his heavenly temple, all cry glory. Because of course the temple hadn't been built at this time. So David here, I think like Psalm 27, has in mind very much the heavenly temple. The point is, this is our God, full of majesty, full of power, full of glory. There's no one like him. And the reaction of angels in heaven, in the heavenly temple, the greatest power of God is clear. They just cry out, glory. They have been asked in verse 1 to ascribe glory to God. And they have answered in verse 9. Glory. And this is what true worship is, isn't it? True worship is full of awe and wonder. When we come together here to worship the Lord, we should be coming with awe and wonder at the God we are worshipping. Did you come today with a sense of awe and wonder? As you came this evening. You know, artists talk of visual lethargy. You know, visual lethargy, have you ever come across the term? Visual lethargy means the more you see something, the less you actually see it. Right? The more you see something, the less you actually see it. And I experienced this first time when I, when I, when I first started work in central London. I used to go, I used to work um, off Whitehall at the Department for Transport somewhere there. And, but I used to come out at Charing Cross and I would walk straight down rather than come out of um, Westminster, right? I used to do that on purpose because I liked coming out, pass through Trafalgar Square. My dad was back in Zambia. 
And I felt very proud at that time. I said, I'll tell him about it. And I said, yeah. I'm working in central London, and I passed through Trafalgar. He knew all the landmarks. I enjoyed taking in the historic nature of the city, the center. I was blown away. No matter how many times I walked on it, I just enjoyed Trafalgar. Great. St. James's, sometimes I go to the park there. I just enjoyed that. House of Parliament, I'll take them in. This is good. Churchill, you know, those things that they put there. I enjoyed that. That was my first year as a young economist. I really enjoyed that. But then something started to happen, right? Second year, oh, Trafalgar, interesting. You move along. Third year, well, it's not, it's not even there. I mean, it's like you don't even notice it. Somebody has to tell you something new is happening. It can even become an inconvenience if there are protests there. I stopped taking in the beauty of what I was saying. I forgot I was walking through amazing history, 2,000 years of history, right? And sometimes I would even, you know, get baffled when I see Chinese uh, visitors come, right? Because what happens is that when they, some of them come for weddings, or they take photos. I don't, I don't know if you've seen that. Sometimes when you're there, they, they go there just to take photos. They dress, I don't know if it's for a brochure or it's a real wedding, I don't know. But they're dressed up, and they, I'm like, why would you come here to do that? I mean, Beijing, I'm sure, is great. Why would you want to do this, right? The point is that, what once attracted me, no longer did. It was still there, but I stopped seeing it. And the thing is that you cannot celebrate what you fail to see. You've got to see it. And many of us have this problem with God. We have become too familiar with him. We have sadly come to equate Bible knowledge with worship. I just wonder this evening, beloved, is it possible that rather than being filled with the wonder and excitement you had when you were first converted, that wonder and excitement like a small child, your heart has now become cold to the things of God? As Keith Green says, my eyes are dry, my faith is hot, and my heart is cold. Does that describe you? You know, Jesus died for your sins and that God is powerful. But these truths have, you're suffering from visual lethargy. These truths have strangely created a deadness. Nothing seems to amaze you. You know the problem with that? When we become like that, we are no longer worshiping God as our glorious, powerful God. We are not crying out with the angels, glory. We are not doing that. And that's a terrible place to be in. Because what can be done for the heart that has grown cold? What can be done for a heart that has drunk the rain already? For the land that has drunk the rain and gone dry? Is that your experience? What can be done? The only thing that can be done is to run back to God, isn't it? is to be aware this is happening to us. To stop comparing ourselves to others and recognize the height from which we have fallen. That's the whole point of the book of the first three, the seven letters in Revelation. They are constantly calling those churches to recognize the height from which they have fallen. That their hearts have grown cold. 
There's always going to be somebody spiritually doing worse than you, humanly speaking, in the life of a church like ours. And if your life is comparisons, then, then you've missed the boat. Beloved, I, I encourage you to just focus on Christ. Examine your life. Run to God. Confess that what you found exciting once is now boring to you. It, that's, 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 that, that, that's a difficult confession. It's, it's scary. But, it's, but your, your Savior is loving, is faithful, is a king of sinners. He, 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 he recognizes in, nothing in your life surprises him. And he's brought you here this evening just to hear that, I think. Confess to God that you're sometimes bored by his glory. That life sometimes takes over. And plead to him to open your eyes afresh, as the angels do here, and, and, and seek help uh, in the life of the church. And speak to others. And be open. Let us confess uh, these issues to one another so we can pray for one another, so that we can be people that are... Uh, well, can we truly join with the angels? Glory. Glory. So, three reasons to worship God. God is gloriously beautiful, reason number one. And secondly, God is gloriously reigning. And our worship of God must come from the heart. Uh, sorry, God is gloriously powerful, I meant to say as a second point. I'm anticipating my third point. The third reason is that God is gloriously reigning. Moving on then. God is gloriously reigning. And I'll be quick. God is pictured in this psalm as one who sits enthroned over the flood. Look at verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. The mention of the flood should immediately make us sit up, shouldn't it? Because the flood reminds us, of course, here is Noah's flood in Genesis. The flood was a supreme demonstration of God's sovereign and purposeful control over the powerful forces of nature. And the psalmist is saying that God is gloriously in charge over all things. The Lord is comfortably sitting as king over all things. I just love the picture of verse 10. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, over judgment. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. He is gloriously reigning. Here there is a reminder, isn't it, that the one who controls all things is the person. Don't miss that. It is the Lord who sits enthroned over the flood. It is the Lord who is enthroned as king. As believers, we should always remember that, that, that we are in a relationship with a person. We are in a relationship with a God. He, he is a person. And David here declares 18 times the name of God, the Lord. By the way, I'll leave you to, to, to check for yourself. I counted 18 times. The personal name of the Lord is mentioned in this psalm, but I'll leave you to do the count. Lord is important, isn't it, for us, because that's the person, personal and sovereign Lord of Israel. He's the one who's in charge. He sees us king. This is our Lord, right? Jesus is Yahweh serves. 
The Lord is sitting not only indicating his rule, as I said, but it indicates his judgment and his salvation. Why, why is God sitting? Well, God is sitting to work to restrain evil against his people. That's what verse 11 is getting at. And this links us to some, we looked at in Psalm 12 this morning. Look at verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. David is looking to this great God for protection and salvation from all enemies. And as I said, we know this God is the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Yahweh serves who has brought salvation to all who trust in him. It is our Jesus on the throne. We can even read verse 11. May Jesus give strength to his church. May Jesus bless his people with peace. We can read verse 10. Jesus sits enthroned over the flood. Jesus sits enthroned as king forever. Jesus, our king, is on the throne. That's a Christian's comfort. Now, knowing that is easy. But living it is hard. It is hard to believe Jesus is gloriously reigning when we are grappling with a very controlling boss at work. It's difficult. We can come to church on a Sunday, but Monday, with a tough boss, how? We're going to struggle to remember this truth. It is hard to believe that God is in charge when you are wrestling with relational problems in your life and you're desperately seeking answers. It is hard to believe that you have everything in Christ when your loved one is terminally ill. You may be the center of the local town, but it's still hard. It is hard. And that's why the Lord has reminded us these things. But imagine if you really believed what David teaches us here. Because it is true. That God is gloriously reigning. What would be worshipping God as the one who's gloriously reigning mean for you on Monday? In a situation you're in, I think it means placing all our trust in God. It means verse 11. May the Lord give strength to his people. Looking to the Lord. Praying to the Lord. May the Lord give me strength. May the Lord bless his people with peace in my situation. This is the point. True worship recognizes that God, listen to me, if you hear anything today, just listen to this one, right? Wake up for this one, right? <laughs> true worship, <laughs> true worship recognizes that God is not just reigning over the solar system, but also in my own home. It's not just an abstract thing. When we are truly worshiping God, it isn't just coming to church on a Sunday and saying, Lord, you are worthy, you are worthy, you are worthy. True worship is recognizing that, yes, this God who is in charge over the entire cosmos is also in charge over every detail of my life. He is Lord in my house. He is Lord at work. He is in charge of all things. And therefore, I must surrender all things to him. True worship says, I know God is in full control of my entire life from birth to when I see him face to face. So I am not alone. Jesus is with me. And therefore true worship says, 
I am handing over all my anxieties about the future to him. All my struggles, all my resources, and everything that I have to him. Because this is my God. That's true worship, beloved. So the worship isn't simply an abstract thing. It's a lived thing. And that, of course, that takes us back to Romans 12, isn't it? Offer your body as your living sacrifice to God. Three things we've learned, isn't it? And we'll come to an end. We must worship God. Why? Because he's gloriously beautiful. Let us give God all the glory he alone deserves. Let us allow everything around us to point us to God. This coming week, make a deliberate effort for the blessings you're seeing, the creation around you, to be moments that draw you in into worshiping God. A kind gesture from someone. Let that be a reason to say, they are kind because my Heavenly Father is kind to me. Allow all of life to be occasion for worship. When you're running out of time for that meeting, pause to reflect that God never runs out of time. And you worship a God who is in charge of all time. And surrender that moment to him. When you feel overwhelmed in the home, perhaps kids running all over the place or, or, or whatever, or wherever your neighbor's being rude, pause to reflect that a time is coming when your heavenly father will usher you in into where everything else will run properly. And pause to reflect perhaps when you see the order of the chaos and say, isn't God so patient? I struggle with this situation, but God never struggles with me. Use these moments, difficult, good moments, all of them to, as a finger pointing to God, because God is gloriously beautiful. The second thing we've learned is that we must worship God because he's gloriously powerful. Beloved, let us repent of our visual lethargy. Let us fall on our knees every day and ask God to give us a new hope, a new sense of wonder of who God is. And I just want to say we have a responsibility to help each other in this. I was reading an article actually interesting this afternoon about helping pastors. I won't tell you about it. But one of the things that the article said had three points. And the third point was like, point your pastor to Jesus because he forgets. Point your pastor to Jesus all the time. Now, I use that as my own application, but I think that's an important point. I forget. I can forget. I can lose my whole wonder who God is. All of us can. Our great elder can, can forget. We need to point each other to Jesus all the time. Remind each other. Remind each other of this sense of all we are meant to have, this sense of wonder of who our God is. And finally, we said we must worship God because he is gloriously reigning. I just want to say that means true worship isn't just a verbal thing. It is really you saying, I'm entrusting myself to the Lordship of God. I'm fully trusting him everything. This God who reigns over the cosmos reigns over my husband. This God who reigns over galaxies reigns over my difficult toddler. It's, 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 it's allowing God to be God because he is God and surrendering to him in a real tangible way. Well, may the Lord help us to worship him as befits his glory. May the Lord indeed give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. Amen.